0: Okay, so, Happy Good Friday, why do they call it good? We're going to find out. So, I was thinking about this holiday um, and how the world views it. Unbelievers generally have no problem accepting that a man named Jesus lived and had a Religious following, and most unbelievers um, will even accept the idea that Jesus was crucified, as it is a matter of historical record from both believers and unbelievers that have testified to it. But they don't accept the testimony, obviously, of any miracles that Jesus did or that he was bodily resurrected, and certainly that he's not God. Um, But what we will hopefully see tonight in this account in John um, is that. The scriptural account of the crucifixion proves jesus is who the scriptures say he is and that he did what the apostles said he did the the divinity is in the details you've heard of the familiar saying the devil is in the details well that would be inappropriate for today's subject so the divinity is in the details that's the title anyway the unbeliever will willfully dismiss the details Of the crucifixion, but in those details um, is where, within those details, is the foundation of the Christian faith. Um, So tonight on this Good Friday, I want to read through, I just want to walk through John's record of these events that took place 1,990 years ago. The day that man murdered God incarnate, the day that the only innocent man to ever live. Was deemed guilty by the masses the day that the ultimate injustice was committed. That day, that day started uh, when Jesus and the apostles were having the Passover supper. Remember, um, it's a good thing to remember that the Jewish day began at sundown, so our Thursday night was Friday for them. Okay, and it was in this Passover supper wherein Jesus redefined the symbolism of the Supper supper about his coming crucifixion. We will begin uh, at when they had just finished the Supper um, and the Passover, just finished the Passover meal. And it starts in John chapter 18. So we're going to walk through John chapter 18 and 19. get the full account so let's read when jesus had spoken these words that he spoke to the apostles at the at the supper he went out with his disciples across the brook of kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered now judas who betrayed him also knew the knew the place for jesus often met there with his disciples so judas having procured, procured, procured A band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. And now I will stop there. The response that Jesus gives these soldiers is massively significant. And it's something that the casual reader might just pass over. Um, your translation might or might not, it might say, I am he, okay? But the Greek for that term is "ego egoimi, which literally means I am. So what? <laughs> well, the, the name of God, as in Hebrew, is, of course, Yahweh, and that means I am. Jesus was not only acknowledging that he was Jesus of Nazareth, but he was saying, I am. Yahweh. Now, some may say, well, that's a stretched Tim. Okay, but remember when Jesus told the Jews back in John chapter 8, remember the Jews were questioning him, and, and he was saying that Abraham saw my day and rejoiced, and then they said, you're not even 50 years old. How do you know Abraham? And Jesus responded by saying, before Abraham was, I am. And it's that same Greek term, ego mean, um, wherein Jesus was claiming to be Yahweh, the eternal God and creator of all things. And this name goes all the way back to Exodus 3, when God told Moses to tell the people of Israel that his name is I Am. But the Jews knew uh, Jesus was claiming to be God in John chapter 8, because they immediately picked up stones to stone him in that account. So in our Good Friday account, the following happened in verse 6. It says, when Jesus said to them, I Am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus gave... Um, some credibility to his divine claim with a small display of his power and caused them all to fall back, fall to the ground, graciously warning them as he showed how he was in total control of the situation. But of course, they didn't recognize that, nor did they repent. So in verse 7, he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Of course, he's prayed that in John 17. And this was a physical, literal fulfillment of that, that he was controlling the situation. They were not going to be arrested. It was only going to be him. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, this seemed like a valiant and loyal action that Peter did, something I might have done, but he completely ignored what Jesus had told him prior to this. You remember back in Matthew 16, 21, it says, From that time time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block for me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. So this statement to Peter, wherein Jesus called him Satan, should have stuck in Peter's brain a little bit, but Peter's going to be Peter, okay? But I assure you, you know, we are all like Peter in many ways, as we all have our areas where we lack faith and have an excess of pride where we will express this kind of characteristic. Yet Jesus showed Peter amazing grace as he does with all of us. But what's amazing to me about this account is that they only arre- they only arrested Jesus after, after this. I mean, Peter cut off the guy's ear and the soldiers didn't pursue them. And, and they were, Jesus was sovereignly in control of that situation and he commanded them, you're only going to arrest me. So I, I just find that interesting that God was showing his, his sound control of the situation there. And then going to, in verse 12, it says, so the band of soldiers and their captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now this, of course, is in reference to an unintended prophecy spoken by the high priest Caiaphas as he was trying to say to to the Sanhedrin that Jesus had to die so he wouldn't lead people away from their authority and risk Roman repercussions. Because remember, the people at that time saw Jesus as a political savior, a warrior savior, that would lead them to freedom from Rome. But Caius's words would prove to have a much greater prophetic meaning, which is interesting, as Jesus' death would save countless sinners from hell and not just Israel from Rome. And then in verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did the other, another disciple, speaking of John, since that disciple was known to the high priest. Now, and this detail should not be overlooked. John somehow was connected and known by those that were connected to the high priest or by the high priest himself. And therefore, this is how he had insight into what the Jewish leaders were saying and doing in that situation, including the prophetic words from Caiaphas. And then reading on, it says, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are are you? And he said, I am not. Peter's first denial. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing warming themselves. And Peter was also with them standing warming himself. And the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered them, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? So we know from verse 13 that this was Annas that they first brought Jesus to and that he was called the high priest. Verse 13 also says Caiaphas was the high priest. So skeptics will try to say that this is a contradiction, being ignorant of the historical context. But in that period of history, the high priests in Jerusalem were installed and removed by the Roman rulers. Okay, while it is not recorded in the Bible, historical accounts state that the Romans deposed Annas and made Caiaphas the high priest. So, officially, Caiaphas, who, who was the son in law of Annas, was high priest during Jesus' ministry. But Annas, the former high priest, still held significant sway and was still treated by the Druze as another high priest, kind of like we have two popes. <laughs> anyway, uh, Jesus responded to Annas after he asked him about this teaching, and Jesus said, I taught openly for three years. Why are you asking me now about my teaching? Jesus knew they were looking for some reason to condemn him, and they, that they really didn't care about what he actually taught. If they cared, they would have listened to him before they arrested him. So this was a perfectly reasonable response by, by Jesus after being unjustly arrested. But of course, the Jewish officer hit him. And then in verse 23, Jesus answered him, If what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So this began the shuffling around of Jesus from one official to another, as none of them knew what to do with Jesus. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, testify that Jesus went from Annas to Caiaphas to Pilate to Herod and back to Pilate. Um, in fact, we're going to take a look at the account that Mark gives us um, of Jesus before Caiaphas. If you want to turn to Mark 14, we're going to read through that a little bit. To kind of fill in the gap that John leaves out. <clears throat> in Mark fourteen fifty five, it says, Now the chief priests, plural, and the whole council have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent; it made no answer. So here we start to see the, the prophetic fulfillment starting to come come out in this in these accounts. Um, Isaiah fifty three seven says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Mark read it earlier. He opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It's funny how modern Jewish people today will try to say that Isaiah 53 is not a prophecy about Jesus. In fact, there's some even in the church that try to say this. They try to say it's about the nation of Israel, but that in no way can apply when you talk about this text in Isaiah, he opened not his mouth. How does the nation of Israel fit that prophecy? It doesn't. This is speaking of an individual. It's speaking prophetically of Christ. Then back in Mark 14, 61, it says, Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. There's that ego, I, me again. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds in heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. So Jesus gave them what they were looking for, confessing the truth of who he is, which in their depraved, rebellious minds was blasphemy. And notice, again, he used that term, I am. Now going back to our account in John 18, verse 25, this is where John picks up the account. It says, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. So Peter denies knowing Jesus a third time, and the rooster crows, and Peter is then immediately reminded of Jesus' prophecy concerning his unfaithfulness. And you can just feel Peter's heart sink in that moment as he realizes the conviction of his sin. And then verse 28, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning, and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, speaking of Pontius Pilate. So they w- they did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So this is an important detail for us to clear up, because People will often get thrown off by this in trying to understand the chronology of events here. Um, it says the Jews did not want to defile themselves by entering the Gentile building so that they could eat the Passover. But didn't Jesus and the apostles just have the Passover Passover Supper hours earlier? So wasn't that the actual Passover holiday that those Jews would have already partaken in? And then the answer is, yeah, um, this was this was the early morning hours after the Passover supper. So they had already participated in the Passover supper. But you see, when it ref- the term eat the Passover in this context included the entire week. You see the 7-day feast of unleavened bread was included as part of the Passover celebration and was re- the whole week was referred to as the feast of the Passover. So the Jews being concerned about not being able to eat the Passover had to do with the rest of the entire holy week they wanted to stay clean for. So don't get confused about that cuz some will say well they ate the Passover that night then the Jews ate the Passover the other night so this is a contradiction and the whole chron- chronology is all screwed up. But that's because we need to understand the terminology they used in that time. And this will be important to understand the timeline for the rest of the account. But think about that. Stepping aside from that detail. The Jews, these religious leaders, were really concerned about defiling themselves ceremonially by entering this Gentile building. But they were determined to have God incarnate put to death the one they were supposed to be worshiping and glorifying in their ceremonial observance, they wanted to brutally murder. And this is the epitome of spiritual blindness. Then in verse 29, of John 18, it says, So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And that, of course, is speaking of the, the way he would be uh, executed. Because if the Jews executed him, they would have stoned him. But the prophecies all point to a crucifixion. So, But under Roman law, The Jews did not have the authority to execute someone. The death penalty had to be approved by the Roman governor, which is funny because, remember, the Jews were ready to stone a woman to death for being caught in the act of adultery. There was an instance I mentioned earlier where the Jews picked up stones to stone Jesus on the spot when he said that, Before Abraham was, I am. But he escaped. So this law... (laughs) This death penalty law doesn't seem to be a law that was strictly followed or enforced. The the Jews seemingly didn't really care about this Roman law. But the Jewish leaders wanted the Romans to kill Jesus because they knew many still thought that Jesus was a prophet. So the Jewish leaders were afraid that if they killed him, many would turn on them. Remember, less than a week earlier, only a few days earlier, thousands of Jews were chanting Hosanna in the highest when Jesus entered in on a donkey. So we just understand that. Sadly, as we shall see, a lot of those people, in fact, most of those people would turn against Jesus. So the Jews made all kinds of accusations against Jesus, saying to Pilate that he forbid the people from giving tribute to Caesar, which is a total lie, but we shall see that their father is the devil. My kingdom were of this world. My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of the world. So again, I've said this before, but I'll repeat it. When Jesus said this, he was, he, he was saying the king, his kingdom is not of this world. That doesn't mean he doesn't have all authority in this world. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus actually said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So what Jesus meant when he said my kingdom is not of this world was that the methods of his kingdom rule are not like the worldly methods. Jesus was going to conquer through his death and resurrection and proclamation of the gospel, not with swords. That's what his point was there. And then in verse 37, Then Pilate said to him, So then you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. <laughs> and then Pilate said to him, What is truth? And we could spend an entire sermon just on that passage. Suffice it to say that Pilate's words are equivalent to the postmodernist view of today, wherein many will say, Well, we all have our own truth. And no one can claim any kind of objective knowledge of truth, which which is a statement of objective knowledge, so it's a self-refuting statement. (laughs) But we know that Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the standard, and his word is the filter through which we can decipher objective truth. Then in verse 38, it says, After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews, speaking of Pilate, and told them, I find no guilt in him. Now, this is amazing to me. Pilate really didn't get much information from Jesus, but he comes back and declares that he found no guilt in Jesus. So what caused this pagan governor to come to such a verdict so quickly um, with such very, so very little testimony? Well, to put it simply, Pilate's wife. And In Matthew twenty-seven nineteen, it says, Besides, while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So God gave Pilate's wife some kind of warning wherein she recognized Christ's righteousness and that Pilate should have nothing to do with judging this man. So Pilate wisely heeded his wife's warning, it seems, and tried to give himself a way out while also appearing just and merciful to the Jews. As in verse 39, it says Pilate talking here, he says, You have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was. A robber, which when you look into the term, uh, the the Greek term for that, it, it speaks of a violent criminal. Some some translations will say an insurrectionist. <laughs> Shockingly, the people called for the release of this violent criminal instead of Jesus, showing just how easily the masses can be led away from the truth, wherein they celebrate and embrace actual evil instead of the holiness of God. And there is an. Abundance of that happening today in our culture. And I can go on and on and on about that, but I won't. Anyway, it was at this point that Pilate sent Jesus over to King Herod, King of the, who was the acting as King of the Jews at the time. But I'm not going to go into the account, but Herod just looked at Jesus and spoke to him a little bit, and Jesus said nothing to him, basically, and Herod sent him right back to Pilate. Apparently. Herod saw how politically dangerous Jesus was, and then moving on to John 19, it says, "Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him." So flogging, <clears throat> it's also called scourging. This was when when Romans would take a whip called a flagellum. It was made of three leather thongs or ropes connected to a handle. And the leather, the leather, the leather thongs uh, were knotted with a number of small pieces of metal bones and a piece of pieces of bronze and glass attached at various intervals so the scourging of a person with this flagellum would quickly remove skin exposing muscle tissue and even bone as the victim would be repeatedly whipped until half dead and oftentimes people would just die from the flogging because of so much blood being lost but this part of what christ would suffer was also actually prophesied in Isaiah 53, as we read earlier, some 700 years earlier. In the New American Standard Bible, it reads this way, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Some translations render this, by his wounds, we are healed. But the original Hebrew word, Uh, Kabura can actually be translated scourging or stripes as the King James translates it. Regardless, we clearly have a prophecy of the gospel within the book of Isaiah here again, 700 years before it happened. And then in verse two of John 19, it says, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him and saying, hail king of the Jews and struck him with their hands and all of this was done in mockery of jesus as they uh, mockering mocking his claim to being a king but there's a deeper theological thing we can see here and i don't think it was con- coincidental back in genesis three seventeen, part of the curse of sin was that thorns would grow up from the ground and choke out the good plants So I think it's fitting here, and I don't think it's coincidental, that this symbol of the curse of sin would be placed upon Jesus' head as a crown as he took upon himself our curse. And then in verse 4 of John 19, it says, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So Pilate tried to appease the crowd's lust for blood by showing just how brutally beaten he was. Pilate evidently underestimated how much blood lost this crowd had. In verse six it says, When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So as much as Pilate wanted to avoid dealing with Jesus, he was starting to see how serious a situation this was. He was likely afraid that whatever he did would be the wrong thing. Um, If he crucified Jesus... There would be a large following that Jesus may still have had that would have rised up violently. Or if he lets him live, the crowd that was there was being stirred up to violence, possibly. So he was in a between a rock and a hard place. Then in verse 9, it says he entered his speaking of Pilate, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you as the greater sin. And there, there couldn't be a more powerful statement that Jesus could I make. Mean, it's, it's just an amazing statement. Pilate was looking for a way out of this. And Jesus essentially told Pilate, you are just a pawn that I am using to achieve my purpose. Essentially what he was saying. But what he said next is interesting. In that he he that delivered Jesus to Pilate had the greater sin. Make no mistake, Pilate was in sin with regard to him scourging Jesus and allowing this injustice to continue. And even though Pilate tried to publicly wash his hands of the situation, that doesn't mean that he didn't bear responsibility for this. But Jesus said there was someone who committed a greater sin. So, in this, we see that there are degrees of sin. Not all sin is the same. All sin separates us from God, but not all sin is judged the same. Not all sin receives the same wrath from God. So, who is this person? or persons, that committed the greater sin. Was it Caiaphas? Annas? Was it Herod? Judas? Or was it the people who called for Barabbas to be set free and called for the crucifixion of Christ? The scriptures don't really come out and say, but I would contend that it was all of them. All of them were given abundant revelation of who Jesus is, and they all rejected him and called for his death. Therefore the greater wrath awaited them than that of Pilate. And then in verse 12 it says from then on Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. <laughs> so it seems like the Jews here were threatening Pilate. Almost like they were going to report Pilate to Caesar if they didn't follow the law if he didn't follow the law. Plus the Jewish leadership openly declared Caesar as their king, rejecting their long-promised Messiah king, who was fulfilling all that had been spoken about him in the prophecies of the Old Testament. But they were utterly and willfully blind to the very scriptures that they knew by heart and could recite. And then in verse 13, it says, So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. Now I want to explore this a little bit. The day of preparation. The day of preparation is an important term. It was how the Jews referred to the day before the Sabbath, what we call Friday. Greeks, to this day, refer to Friday as periscue. Periscue in Greek means day of preparation. So verse 14 essentially says it was the Friday of Passover week. <laughs> the skeptic, now skeptics will scoff at this idea and say, you know, Jesus couldn't have been crucified on Friday, and they will cite the prophecy that J- Jesus himself cited from the book of Jonah. In Matthew 12, Jesus said this, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And they assert that you cannot get three days and three nights from Friday afternoon when Jesus died to early Sunday morning when Jesus rose. Well, here's how we need to understand this, and here's how this isn't a problem. It's a fact that the Jews in the first century counted days differently than we do today. According to their understanding of days, part of any day counted as a day. Part of any night counted as a night. And again, we need to remember that each Jewish day began and ended at sundown. So Jesus died on Friday afternoon. While the sunlight was still being seen that day, he was dead. That counted as a day. But remember... On that day when he was crucified, between noon and three, darkness fell upon the land while he was dead on the cross. Luke 23, 44 says, it was now about the sixth hour, noontime Jewish, in Jewish time. And there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m. Jewish time. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So this might have been some kind of eclipse. We don't know if it was a supernatural thing or if it was an eclipse. But during this period, it was dark. It was like night in that and it was on Friday. Jesus was in the so so we're all before Saturday even came. You have a day and a night. Jesus was in the grave all day Saturday night and Saturday day. So that adds up to two days and two nights. The next Jewish day began at sundown on Saturday. So, Sunday night, Jesus was still in the tomb. And then, when the sun began to rise Sunday morning, the next day started, and Jesus rose on the third day. So, by Jewish time, Jesus was in the grave three day periods and three night periods, fulfilling the prophecy of Jonah perfectly. So, again, we need to understand the historical context and the cultural context of how. Um, these, t- these timing things were, were, were uh, communicated in the first century and not go by our own standards today. Save your question for later. <laughs> and then in verse 14, it was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him, Pilate said to them. Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Again, you know, they keep repeating this, condemning themselves. And so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Now skeptics will assert that there is a contradiction here. As Mark wrote that Jesus Jesus was crucified on the third hour, that's in Mark 15, which according to the Jewish custom of timekeeping would have been the third hour from the sunrise. Okay? which is 9 a.m. The Jews did not count hours uh, while the sun was down. So if Mark said J- Jesus was crucified on the third hour, then how is Jesus standing before Pilate on the sixth hour, as John says here? Because that would have been bef- before that. Well, John writing was writing to a Gentile audience and was likely referring to Roman timekeeping, which counted the hours from midnight. So Jesus, Jesus stood before Pilate in the sixth hour, which would have been 6 a.m. here in John 19, 14, putting it in harmony with Mark's account, which used Jewish timekeeping. And you may be wondering, well, how did the Romans keep time while the sun is down? And they had what's called water clocks. They calibrated a water clock from a sundial that, so that they could measure time at night. The water clock was known as a clepsydra, and it used it was actually used for centuries before Jesus came, and it uses water flow to measure time. <laughs> anyway, there is no contradiction here if we leave room for the different contextual perspectives that the gospel writers were using. So, but more significantly here, Pilate gave the Jews another chance to let Jesus live, but they repeated their same commitment to Caesar which was simply a lie because they hated Jesus and wanted him dead. Then in verse 17, it says, So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And this hill is also, we refer to it and is known as Calvary. Calvary comes from the Latin version of Golgotha and also means skull." And it referred to a skull-shaped hill in ancient Jerusalem, which was fittingly the site of Jesus' crucifixion. Now, Bible skeptics, again, will claim that this verse is a contradiction, as they will point out that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention that Simon of Cyrene carried Jesus' cross. Whereas John says nothing about Simon, and he said that Jesus carried his own cross. So is this a contradiction? Absolutely not. You see, John states that Jesus went out bearing his own cross. That means he started to walk to Golgotha carrying his own cross, which is exactly what happened in the other accounts, the other Gospels. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention that the Romans later forced Simon of Cyrene to bear the cross when Jesus collapsed. So it's, it's obvious what happened here. And again, there is no contradiction in these accounts, when we allow them to be harmonized, when we allow them to see from four different perspectives instead of trying to say they all have to say the exact same thing. And then in verse 18, it says, There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So Pilate really wanted to get that message across. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Did not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. <laughs> And I love this. I, I, this makes me wonder, did Pontius Pilate become a believer? Interestingly, the early church father, Tertullian, had this quote about Pilate. He said, speaking of Pilate, he said, who himself also in his own conscience was now a Christian. Now, I don't know how Tertullian knew that. I don't know what he was drawing from to, to come to that conclusion. There have been all kinds of contradictory things written about Pilate, so we don't know for sure what happened. But the testimony of the scripture seems to hint that Pilate was truly moved by Jesus in some sense. Now, it's possible that he told the Jews that he was keeping what he had written on the cross just to spite them. And he may have been hesitant to crucify Jesus out of his own self-preservation politically. So it's all speculation. But we need to realize that Pilate was not necessarily beyond God's grace, which is a powerful truth for a person who is experiencing great sorrow for sin and is convicted by what Christ has spoken, that they too may know that they are not beyond God's grace. We all spiritually partook in the crucifixion of Jesus. And that's that's key. I grew up hearing about Pilate as being one of the most evil people on earth. (laughs) That's the impression you get from him because he crucified Jesus. But we all did we all partook in the crucifixion of Jesus through our sinfulness and rebellion against God. Anyway, the wording of this sign that Pilate had made didn't sit well with the chief priests. And instead of it being condemning of Jesus, it rather served to condemn the Jews who were crucifying their own king. And then in verse 23, it says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. So here we have another prophecy. This one in reference to Psalm 22 written by King David a thousand years before Christ was crucified. Mm -hmm. Yet that psalm, of course, describes a person experiencing crucifixion hundreds of years before crucifixion would even be invented. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians between 300 and 400 BC, and David wrote Psalm 22 in 1000 BC. Yet the psalm talks about a person's hands and feet being pierced. It's almost like you can hear Jesus speaking from the cross as you read Psalm 22. It talks about all his bones being pulled out of joint, which is what happens in a crucifixion. Not only does the psalm describe a person being crucified, but the psalm Psalm just happens to begin and end with what Jesus would be Jesus' first words and his last words on the cross. The psalm described everything Jesus experienced and why, and that the whole world would remember this event, just like what we're doing tonight. We are fulfilling that prophecy in Psalm 22 right now. So why would the whole world remember the execution of one insignificant man in all of history? Well, because this man was the most significant man in all of history. And as John mentioned, the Psalm even described the detail of these soldiers casting lots for Jesus' robe. A strange detail to be included in a song that was literally fulfilled a thousand years after it was written. And of course, we have physical evidence that this was written before Jesus came. As I've mentioned before, Psalm 22 is included in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which it was penned, those scrolls were penned two centuries before Christ was born. So John is pointing us to prophetic evidence in the Old Testament that we can know the claims of Jesus and the apostles are true. And so all those who became Christians in the first century would see that the claims of Jesus are true, because they were witnessing it. They saw what Jesus was doing. Because if the apostles just made up these details about Jesus just to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, no one would have converted. They knew, they they were there. That's why we have a church today. Then in verse 25 of John 19, it says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, this is speaking of John, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Now it's interesting, Jesus was committing the care of his mother to the apostle John, and even says it right in the verse, and from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. That was the purpose of him saying that because Mary's other children were not yet believers. This was in no way Jesus telling the church to pray to Mary or bow and worship her as Roman Catholic priests erroneously teach though you will have Catholics that you will come across who will assert that they do not worship Mary. They just give her reverence and love. And that's just baloney because I revere the apostles. I revere the early church fathers. I revere the Protestant reformers, but I don't pray to them. I don't bow before statues of them. I don't treat them as omniscient or omnipresent like God is. That's worship. (laughs) So moving on. Verse 28, <clears throat> after this, Jesus, knowing all that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst, as he was on that cross. This, again, is a reference to Psalm 22. As in verse 4 of Psalm 22, it says, I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax, it is melted, I'm sorry, I said 22-4, it's 22-14. I am poured out like water; all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax; it is melted in the midst. Of, it melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death; for dogs have encompassed me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. So his tongue sticking to his jaws is a graphic description of great thirst and dehydration that this person experienced. And this is what the apostle, apostle John was referring to when he said Jesus' words, I thirst, was a fulfillment of scripture. He's talking about Psalm 22. And it's, this Psalm is all in the context of a person having his hands and feet pierced by evildoers that encircled him and mocking, were mocking him. As I've said before, Psalm 22 single-handedly proves the scriptures as being God-breathed. And it's just one example of that. Moving on to verse 29. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head. And gave up his spirit. <clears throat> so even Jesus' words here at the end, it is finished, was a fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven 27 says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Well, remember what? They will remember the fulfillment that everything that is being prophesied in this psalm. And it goes on to say, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations and the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. So who shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn? It says posterity. Future generations of people will proclaim what Jesus and the apostles proclaimed to people yet unborn. And that term, people yet unborn, that, of, that includes us. As when, the, when this was written, we are those people that were yet unborn. We here are in the Bible. And what specifically is this message that would be proclaimed to us? Well, it says it right at the end of the psalm, that he has done it. Psalm 22 was written in Hebrew, and that phrase translated that he has done it, uh, that comes from the Hebrew root word Esau, and it can also be translated as accomplished or fulfilled or finished. finished. And in John 19.31, the phrase translated, it is finished, comes from the Greek word teleo which can also be translated accomplished fulfilled or finished so we essentially have the same words used as Jesus' last words in psalm 22 and the john 19 fulfillment so what was accomplished what was fulfilled what was finished well the very thing that the old testament pointed to for 1500 years good friday the blood atonement of Christ for our sins. Everything in this book points to this event in history. Everything circles around Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And then verse 31. says, so since it was the day of preparation, remember the Hebrew name for Friday. And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. for The Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Of course, the breaking of the legs and being of those being crucified greatly sped up their death as well. Being on the cross, gravity becomes your greatest enemy as you have to push your body up as you're hunched over. You have to push up with your legs in order to breathe, in order to inhale and exhale, as you are literally on the cross being crushed by gravity, which is significant. Because that Isaiah 53 prophecy talks about him being crushed for our iniquities. Another amazing fulfillment that Jesus had in the scriptures. Anyway, if the person's legs are broken, they can no longer push themselves up to breathe, so they suffocate more quickly. And this was needed to get these guys off the cross before the Sabbath because nobody wanted to deal with dead bodies being on the cross for another whole day. And the Romans didn't want to touch them. So in verse 32, it says, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. Which again is another prophecy from the Psalms. In Psalm 34 and 20 it says, He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. So the Lord sovereignly caused this soldier to see that Jesus was already dead and then pierce his side to confirm it, wherein blood and water came out. And those who suffer the flogging They would often go into what's called hypovolemic shock. I don't know if you can confirm this, a term that refers to low blood volume. And the results of this shock would be that the heart would race to pump blood that was not there. The victim would collapse or faint due to low blood pressure. The kidneys would shut down to preserve body fluids. And the person would experience extreme thirst as the body desired to replenish the lost fluids. And scripture describes Jesus experiencing these symptoms as Jesus collapsed as he carried the cross. Jesus declared he was thirsty when he hung on the cross. and Prior to death, he sustained rapid heartbeat caused by hypovolemic shock. And this caused fluid to gather in the sack around his heart and lungs. This is called pericardial effusion and also pleural effusion. And this explains why after Jesus died and the Roman soldier thrust the spear through his side, piercing both his lungs and heart, that blood and water came out from his side, just as the gospel records. Essentially, Jesus died from cardiac arrest. But it's amazing how precise the scripture is in describing what he he endured. And then in verse 37, it says, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And this, again, is another passage that single-handedly proves the scriptures to have been written by God. Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Over a firstborn. So in this passage, who pours out The spirit of grace on the inhabitants of Jerusalem? That would be God, the Father, Yahweh. So we know who is speaking in this passage. The narrator, God, said the inhabitants of Jerusalem will look on me whom they have pierced. When did the inhabitants of Jerusalem look upon the pierced Yahweh? Well, it was on the cross of Christ 1,990 years ago. This verse not only prophesied the crucifixion, but it establishes the triune nature of God, that Jesus is Yahweh, and all three persons are present in this passage. There will come a day when the inhabitants of Jerusalem will meet, weep over the Messiah, whom they have pierced. Literally, in the future, those living in Jerusalem will come to faith, but also this prophecy speaks of all of God's elect who come to faith in Jesus Christ through the church age as we mourn over our sin and how our sin put Christ on the cross. And if you've come to recognize Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have mourned over what your sin did to him. That is why when we are tempted in some way to enter into sin, we must remember the cross and know that when we sin, we are the ones driving the nails into his flesh. We are the ones denying him as Peter did. We are the ones whipping him with the flagellum. We are the ones that were casting lots for his clothes. We are the ones spitting on him and mocking him and punching him. We are the ones driving the spear through his heart and lungs. We are the ones looking upon him when we pierced and weeping bitterly. I'm running out of time pretty fastly here. It goes on, I'm just going to finish off the passage here. It says in verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away the body. Nicodemus also, who early earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and al- aloes, about seventy pounds, 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes and with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So they placed him in a brand new nearby tomb owned by this rich guy, Joseph of Arimathea, which was a big deal for this rich man to give his brand new family tomb to a convicted criminal. (laughs) But then also one of the Jewish religious leaders, Nicodemus, helped him put him in this tomb, showing that these two men truly loved this man, even though through their loss of hope in him. And this too was a fulfillment of prophecy. As back to Isaiah 53, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus died alongside wicked men on the cross, but then was placed in a rich man's tomb. So this ended, the darkest day that mankind has ever known. So why do we call this Good Friday, you might ask? <laughs> because this was not the end, of course, as we shall see on Sunday. This day is called good because it is the fulfillment of everything that Christ set out to accomplish. Everything that his words spoke of leading up to this point. In order to save us, so let's pray, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this glorious account. This just one of the four accounts of.